Welcome everyone to Pants on Fire, Exposing Ruling Class Lies. And uh, in today's episode, we're joined by Ofer Kasif, who is a uh, member of parliament in Israel and also a member of the Communist Party of Israel. Welcome, Ofer. We're glad to have you. Thank you so much. So uh, let's start with a little bit of background about who you are and how long you've been in politics and how long you've been a, a member of the uh, Communist Party. Well, I try to, to be as briefly as possible. Uh, I was born in uh, the center of Israel in a, in a city not too far from Tel Aviv to a labor party Zionist uh, family. Uh, but since I was in, uh, about, I begin, I believe, 15, 16 years old, I began to move further to the left. It was a gradual uh, process. So in the beginning, I joined the youth movement called the Shomer Atzair, which is, uh, was associated with the Socialist Zionist Party then. And thereafter, I, uh, uh, unfortunately, I must say, I regret it now, but then I went to, to the service of the uh, Israeli army when uh, I was at the kibbutz. By the way, a kibbutz that was uh, seriously assaulted uh, in, uh, two weeks ago. In, so uh, in the, in, uh, on the 7th of uh, October. And, uh, after I finished the service, I went to the university, the Hebrew University, and uh, I began to, <laughs> during the service, I, my, my, my views began to shift more to the left. And when I left the university, after a while, the first intifada, the Palestinian uprising began, and I was called to reserve service, which I refused because it was supposed to be in Gaza. So that was the first time that I refused to serve in the military in the occupied Palestinian territories. I was in prison. Thereafter, I was another three times, altogether four times in military prison for refusing to serve in the uh, occupying forces in the occupied Palestinian territories. And then I joined the Communist Party at the same time, more or less. I was also the chairperson of the leftist, Jewish Arab leftist uh, student association of the Hebrew University. And I was uh, a parliamentary assistant to the general secretary then of the Communist Party in the parliament. And ever since I'm a member of the, of the party. When I was uh, outside of Israel for my PhD and postdoc, my PhD uh, was uh, in England uh, and thereafter a postdoc in the States. So then uh, I wasn't too active uh, politically, just a bit. And uh, when I came back to Israel, so I rejoined the Communist Party and was elected uh, about 10 years ago, perhaps more, to the leadership of the today. Uh, first of all, to the Central Committee, afterwards to the Polit Bureau, Political Bureau. And, uh, and I was elected to the list, uh, which led me to be a member of the parliament uh, almost five years ago, in March. Uh, 19 and here I am <laughs> so I think a lot of people would be would be surprised to to hear that uh, a member of parliament is also a member of uh, the communist party and that that's because uh, that's something that here in the United States obviously we don't it would be unheard of for a, for an a open yes because 
obviously because the because the system is totally different, you know. So uh, that has to do a lot with uh, who's uh, in the parliament or in the congress uh, in your case, or or otherwise. The system is totally different. Israel is a, a radical multi-party system. That is to say that it consists of many parties which participate in elections normally. We are talking about 40, 50 parties that normally participate in elections. Uh, but eventually, even within the Knesset, within the parliament, there are more than 10 different parties or lists. So it is a radical multi-party system. Uh, the Communist Party under different names, different coalitions, has always had uh, representatives in the parliament since the establishment of the state in '48. So that was a, a, a very brief political science uh, speech <laughs> or, or lecture. <laughs> well, thanks for that. And uh, so let's go back to your early life. You said you were. Uh, you were you served in the military and then you went to university and then they asked you to come back. No, that was a, a, in Israel. You know, it is it is compulsory to serve in the in the army in principle uh, for women too, uh, and the, but also there's a reserve service. So after a, if normally uh, those who go to service serve. Uh, men serve three years, uh, that's the basis, and women two years. Now, after you finish with this uh, compulsory service, there is a reserve service. So um, in, in normal days, uh, people serve, uh, it may be two weeks, it may be one month uh, per year, reserve service. And of course, if there's an emergency uh, or, or special times like uh, nowadays, Unfortunately, so you may be called upon by, uh, you know, in, 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 to, to come immediately to, uh, to reserve for reserve service. And that uh, uh, may take even more than one month or two months. For instance, if there's a, a last a war, you may be uh, called up to reserve service, even if you are, say, 40 or more, uh, for uh, maybe for two, three or four months, dependent. Depends on the situation, but that's why I was called upon, uh, you know, for a reserve service uh, then in uh, the end of 87, beginning of 88. Hmm. And so you went to uh, military prison a couple of times over your uh, conscientious objection to, to serving in Gaza. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the first time I was in Gaza. Some other times were in other places in the occupied Palestinian territories, but in principle, that's true that I uh, uh, I refused to to serve uh, as an occupier, and therefore I was imprisoned four times. So what was that like being in a military prison? I mean, uh, that wasn't that bad, you know. the The only problem in the first time was that I was the first mm. person who, ref who refused publicly and was. Uh, in prison, so when under the circumstances of the first uh, uprising, uh, Palestinian uprising, and first uprising in, uh, in general against the occupation, so that wasn't that easy because uh, I wasn't, uh, I should have put it as an understatement, 
I wasn't the most popular guy in prison <laughs> so, <laughs> or in society at all as, as a whole. And I got used to it, yes. But uh, that was a, that was, wasn't that bad for different reasons. I met some friends there, so it was okay. And afterwards, in the other times that I was in prison, there were already many more who refused to serve in the occupied territory. So we, uh, we were a group of almost 10 prisoners for the same thing. So it was much more easier on us. So what was it like growing up in, uh, in Israel, going to school, and uh, what what did you learn about about Zionism? Look, my, one has to understand that uh, Israel uh, is a very conformist society, especially uh, around uh, two things. I, I I do not say if it's good or bad. I just first of all, you know, wants to just to reveal something that perhaps people are not aware of. One is the military, one is the Holocaust. The Holocaust has a very strong uh, collective memory in Israel. And of course, it, has a, it is reasonable, it, it is understandable. Right. Uh, the problem is not the very remembrance which I share. The problem is the manip- political manipulation and ideological manipulations that are done in that matter. That's the problem. I totally support and cherish the, the, you know, the memory of the Holocaust uh, victims and survivors, as well as of victims of slavery, for instance, in the States or other victims in, around the world. So I do share that memory, and I think it should be strongly uh, learned uh, at school. The problem is that the the governments of Israel, and uh, always, but uh, it. Uh, it became from bad to worse throughout the years that the governments of Israel manipulated uh, for nationalist, uh, xenophobic uh, causes. That's the problem. For mm-hmm. instance, you know, there is this saying that has been used in the last two weeks since the terrible criminal massacre carried out by Hamas, that never again. Now, never again could be understood in two different ways. One way is that never again to the Jewish people. The second is never again for anyone. And of course, I totally uh, endorse the second. The problem is that the uh, education system in Israel and the public discourse in Israel is much more, uh, you know, in favor of the first option. And that, of course, means practically that the the governments of Israel can do almost whatever they like. Mm. Under the using the excuse of never again to us, and uh, that's something which I totally reject, and it's very strong in the education system, uh, obviously today. And when I was a, a student at uh, the at, uh, at school, high school and elementary school, I remember that uh, it was already there. Although, as I said before, it's much more worse now. So that's one thing. The other thing, which is a consequence of the first, is the uh, worship of the military. Mm. Uh, the, the, the Israeli military enjoys a, a sort of, you know, a status of holiness. It is sacred almost. Now, uh, there are two basic reasons. One, following what I said before. 
that if it's never again, it means that we have to do something to prevent that. And uh, and because there is an, a, a basic you know assumption which is historical, and uh, and it is historically false, is that anti-Semitism is a kind of a natural inherent characteristic uh, of the so-called Gentile world. So the risk of a of a second Holocaust always exists, and because of that, the, the military of Israel is the uh, element that should uh, prevent it from happening again. And because of that, there is a kind of a worship around it. Secondly, there is another reason why it uh, it's been uh, so sacred in the public discourse. Although again, there are uh, ebbs and flows, you know, in that. Dependent on circumstances, the uh, global ones, the uh, regional ones, etc. But in general, Ben Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, he saw the uh, the military, and it's not implicit or a secret. He said so explicitly and wrote about it quite a lot that the Israeli military has a function beyond the security or defensive one, as it were, and it is to be used as a melting pot of the different Jews coming from over from across the globe, because uh, Israel is based on, a, apart from the indigenous Palestinian people, Israel is basically a state of uh, immigrants. And the uh, Jewish immigrants who are entitled to uh, arrive in Israel and naturalize, they are given the law of return, uh, are coming from different backgrounds, linguistically, culturally, etc. So there was a need, as far as the Zionists saw it, and primarily Ben Gurion, uh, to create, so to speak, a melting pot which will take those different uh, uh, Jews uh, who arrive in Israel and just, you know, all together, if I use the metaphor, melt them into something different which uh, make them more resembling, resembling to each other. And the military was uh, one of the most important factors in that sense, as Ben-Gurion saw it. So those are the main two reasons why the military is still regarded in Israel as a kind of a sacred, holy uh, factor. And of course, it, uh, it has a lot of influence uh, everywhere in society, in uh, politics, uh, relations between uh, Jews and uh, Palestinians between Occidental and Oriental Jews, women and men, everything is derived to some extent from the, the army. And by the way, I must say the class structure of the army. Hmm. Do they teach you that you're constantly in danger and that you you have to be protected at all times? Yeah, that's, that, that's to say the least. I mean, there is a sense, look, I'm not deluded say, myself. Uh, Israel, uh, you know, and the Israelis do need uh, defense. I mean, uh, it's not that we everything, unfortunately. I'm, our struggle is to, to change the situation into a one in which uh, there is this uh, sustainable and uh, viable peace, which, mm-hmm. of course, there, uh, necessitates ending the occupation and the uh, serious and profound equality within the state of Israel, etc., etc. But... Uh, I do not delude myself, of course, uh, Israel does need a, a defense. It does need an army. I don't say that it doesn't. The question is what the army does, what is its uh, main role. Unfortunately, at the, at, the, at the present, for many years, 
Uh, the Israeli military is not used as a defense mechanism, but uh, quite the contrary, as an occupying one. The main uh, part of the terrible uh, you know, slaughter that uh, Hamas uh, uh, did in the, in the south was given was because the military was removed from, the, from there to the West Bank in order to uh, assist uh, settlers in uh, you know deepening the occupation. So that's the main role of the, of the military. So its very existence is not a problem. But given your question, the education is not allowed, it's definitely not in the last few decades, but even before, the education regarding the military and regarding the situation of Israel where uh, was not uh, as, was not simply uh, in, you know in its interest or its uh, uh, gist um, was not just to say look there is a there is a serious uh, danger or risk uh, because X Y Z but it was you know worshiping the military as I said before hmm. so so it actually you know took the uh, the took the truth and radicalized it for political reasons. But what is more important is not that if Israel and Israelis were or are under a threat, because again, there are threats. I do not and cannot, you know, uh, ignore that. Uh, but there are another two questions. First, what, what are the reasons of those threats? And how can we remove them, which in my view are basically political ways and not military ones? And the second is uh, how those threats are uh, manipulated and radicalized in the discourse, including in the education system, in order to benefit one or another politically. Those are the, for me, the main, uh, the main issues. And mm-hmm. uh, as I said, uh, ever since, or oh, when I was in the education uh, system of school, and uh, definitely now. Uh, it is used and, uh, and manipulated by different governments for their own political causes. That's the problem. And as I said before, uh, <laughs> taking anti-Semitism, which is, of course, a, a pandemic which should be tackled and should be uh, uh, fought against, uh, but, ta- but taking anti-Semitism as if it was a natural inherent a characteristic of the world, that's something which, of course, it's ridiculous because it ignores history, it takes it out of history, it's ahistoric. And like any other ahistoric issue, as we learned from Marx, by the way, not only, but definitely from him, for instance, in his criticism of so-called the utopian socialists. So, of course, ahistoric perceptions are always wrong. So let's talk about what's... Uh... What's happening now? Obviously, this is what's on what's on everyone's minds. And the uh, the Communist Party of Israel put out a statement. Uh, many communist workers and socialist parties around the world have put out similar statements. And uh, it's it seems that the the blame is put on this right wing government, this Netanyahu government. And uh, you've actually gotten yourself into some trouble recently <laughs> over some comments that you made. <laughs> And uh yeah, but let's begin from this from the from the end. I was suspended from the Knesset of the Parliament for 45 days, including 
two weeks, uh, no salary, because I, I was very critical of the Israeli government. And I said a few things that the ethics committee of the of the Knesset uh, decided uh, because of we because of them that I should be suspended. Now, perhaps we refer later to what's going on now in Israel, where that the government wages a, a very a dirty and dangerous war uh, on any social and civic and political rights. I mean, there is a real war of the government now, not only against uh, Gaza and and the Palestinians in general, and West Bank as well, but also against anything that has to do with democracy. Uh, perhaps we'll refer to it later. Mm-hmm. But but allow me first to say that I, I don't think that it's it's true, it's a accurate to put the blame for the massacre in the south on the Israeli government. So I would like to distinguish between blame and responsibility, or between mm-hmm. guilt and responsibility. So... Uh, I'll, I'll begin with the massacre. And here I would like to send a very clear message to many, you know, uh, leftist activists, uh, organizations, movements in the United States, especially in the academy and other, and, 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 and across the, the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard, I heard too many uh, human rights uh, activists and uh, defendants uh, that either ignored totally the criminal massacre that Hamas carried out, which I, in my view, it's an, it's an uh, anti, anti-humane perception, and, uh, and, and not to say hypocritical. I heard some others, who, who, who even worse, who actually find the reason to justify this massacre. I want to be very blunt and clear. First, the massacre, the slaughter, carried out by Hamas, is a war criminal crime, is a crime against humanity. It is a terrorist, vicious, despicable uh, uh, butchery, butchery of mainly innocent civilians, including babies, small kids, women, older, uh, elderly, and others who were either in their whole, own homes or the field or uh, on the way, somewhere, or doesn't matter where. That's something that the human rights activist or defendant cannot tolerate whatsoever. That's mm-hmm. something that someone who refers to himself as a leftist, let alone a socialist or a communist, <laughs> someone who does define himself or identifies oneself as such, cannot tolerate whatsoever justify such a massacre. People who are really leftists, are really human rights uh, uh, defendants, or are really peace lovers, must unequivocally and with no reservation condemn totally Hamas and its crimes. Full stop. I ask everyone, I ask everyone who uh, may listen to us to endorse this perception, which is a humane perception, it is a moral perception, it is the right political perception. So that's something I would like to start with. And accordingly, the blame for the attack on Israel is solely on Hamas. Hamas is the only one to put the blame on, full stop. Now, where is the responsibility without 
giving one bit of justification or rationalization of the massacre. Israel has been conducting a vicious, brutal occupation for almost 60 years on the Palestinians in the, all, on the territories that Israel occupied in June 1967. That means uh, primarily the West Bank, uh, East Jerusalem, and the uh, uh, Gaza Strip, to which I, I shall refer in a second with your permission. Mm-hmm. Now, this occupation uh, is really brutal because, first of all, we are talking about millions of people who have no basic rights. Not only the political rights of uh, voting and being elected, but also basic rights like freedom of speech. Uh, it is forbidden, for instance, for Palestinians in uh, the West Bank to demonstrate. If one j- demonstrates, even if it's uh, in, a, in a peaceful demonstration, according to the military law, and I shall refer to the very concept of military law in a second, one may be imprisoned for up to 10 years. So that's clearly not exactly the only democracy in the Middle East. And so it's also freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of movement, etc., etc. Not to mention social rights, uh, which are totally uh, missing in the uh, Palestinian ter- occupied territories. Uh, by the way, definitely, and within Israel as well, as a, a, a capitalistic, so-called neoliberal economy. But going back to the Palestinian occupied territories, Millions of people live under a very brutal uh, occupation in the, in the last few years, and especially under the current government, the last nine or ten months, the occupation is in a continuous deterioration as far as the uh, death toll and the violence uh, toll uh, by settlers under the auspices of the occupation forces and the encouragement of the government. All those are, you know, getting stronger, bigger, and deeper. So many more Palestinians are killed, and by the way, by settlers as well, without being stopped, arrested, or charged, let alone prosecuted. So there is a Ku Klux Klan kingdom in the West Bank, especially in the last nine or ten months, but it began before. So this is one thing. Same, by the way, in East Jerusalem, there's an ethnic cleansing going on. Uh, just to give you one example, just before the massacre and the war began, I visited a few two communities in the uh, Jordan Valley, which is in the West Bank, the occupied West Bank. A solidarity visit to Palestinian uh, farmers and shepherds. And the by then already, four communities were driven out of their land by the pogroms and violence of uh, settlers, again, under the auspices of the occupying army. So pogroms, ethnic uh, cleansing, uh, cleansing, and uh, of course, uh, apartheid regime, because the Palestinians in the occupied territories live under military regime, including military courts, whereas the settlers, for instance, are enjoying the civil court that the Israeli citizens in general enjoy. So there's, an, there's not only an ethnic cleansing in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, but also uh, in the West Bank, there is a, an, a, in both, there's an apartheid system under which the Palestinians are uh, subordinated to a military 
full uh, courts and, uh, and law. So if there is law, and as I said, they are attacked on a daily basis, not to say uh, every hour, by settlers. Just two weeks ago, settlers just entered the uh, village, the Palestinian village of Kusra in West Bank, shot dead, that is to say murdered in cold blood for Palestinians, and went away. No one was arrested, no one was uh, interrogated, nothing. The day after, at the funeral, again, some, some settlers came and shot dead two participants in the middle of the funeral, uh, you know, a father and son. And those are things, those crimes are taken, uh, uh, you know, are occurring, uh, happening on a daily basis. So that's one thing. In East Jerusalem and West uh, Bank, Gaza Strip is under a vicious, a sadistic a siege for 16 years. Uh, you know, the governments of Israel uh, always want to say that they left uh, Gaza. Israel never left Gaza. It is indeed, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, of course, there are no uh, military bases anymore. I mean, uh, Israel dismantled the military bases and the settlements that were in uh, in Gaza Strip, but still controls Gaza Strip. It controls air. It, co- it controls, you know, the commodities and resources that may be, and that may enter or uh, exit the uh, Gaza Strip. It controls uh, water, fuel, medicine. It controls uh, water, the territorial uh, uh, water by the, you know, the sea. So fishermen, Palestinian fishermen are very limited. Uh, they cannot go, you know, too far and for, you know, to make living. And that's, of course, on top of the uh, bombing, bombarding that uh, occurred time and time again in the last uh, uh, 20 years or so. So mm-hmm. uh, all this situation is, an ex- is a volcano expecting to erupt. Again, I, I don't want to be understood as if I was saying that because of that, there was any justification for the uh, massacre done by the Hamas. No, there's no, there's no justification for such a carnage, uh, not the occupation, nothing else. But it is a volcano that they expected to erupt. I personally warned in at least 10 different official letters in the last nine months to the defense minister, given the pogroms, the vicious attacks by settlers against Palestinians in West in the West Bank. I warned the defense minister time and time again that those pogroms, besides being evil, of course, and criminal, should be, you know, uh, tried in the Hague. But I said that on top of that, those uh, pogroms are going to lead to a terrible bloodshed that everybody is going to pay the price because it's going to explode. I sent something like 10 different letters to the defense ministry in the last nine or 10 months. Up till now, I haven't got even one reply from him. Mm-hmm. So it was very obvious the writing was on the wall for, for years definitely months, the writing was on the wall. Everybody who's not blind, was not choosing to be blind. Everyone knew that under such duress, 
under such impossible lives, it's going to explode. I guess that no one could expect that it may have been exploded in the same, in the extent that we saw two weeks ago, almost three weeks ago. But, uh, but still, the writing was on the wall. People cannot live under such conditions without uh, erupting one stage or another. But the government preferred not only to ignore, but to strengthen Hamas and weaken the Palestinian Authority. Everybody talks about it now. But you know that uh, Netanyahu in 2019 explicitly said in the convention of his party, the Likud party, that anyone who doesn't want to see a Palestinian state must strengthen the Hamas and weaken the, uh, the Palestinian Authority. And those are not only words. That's what Netanyahu did as a prime minister for many years with different governments he led. He passed money, million, billions of dollars to the Hamas from Qatar. Everybody knows about it. It's not a secret. I, 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 I do not reveal anything new. He wanted, the fascists in Israel wanted strong Hamas in order to use it, use it as an excuse not to uh, be engaged in any negotiations with the Palestinians towards ending the occupation. Smotrich, who is the current uh, Minister of Finance and as well as a minister in the Ministry of Defense and who is a very is a fanatic, you know, a fundamentalist bigot, uh, said in 2015, all, all, uh, again, it's not uh, a secret and it's not implicit. He said, the Palestinian Authority is a burden because it's ready to speak peace. Hamas is an asset because it refuses to speak peace. So they led. Again, I'm not talking about guilt. I'm talking about guilt in not doing something and in creating circumstances that could allow such a carnage like Hamas did to occur. That's what I'm trying to say. I want to be mm-hmm. very clear in that. So nobody would uh, have uh, to, uh, the, the chance to accuse me as if I said that Israel or the government of Israel is guilty in this carnage that uh, happened in the south of Israel because I don't say that. I said that the governments of Israel, especially the governments under Netanyahu, created consciously circumstances that led and allowed the carnage to happen. Mm-hmm. So that's something the world should know. Yes, and I really appreciate you um, you making that distinction because you're right. Uh, there are a lot of uh, leftists in the West that um, are, I guess, buying into this idea of a binary that if you're for Palestinian liberation, then you have to be for Hamas. And it's like... That's crazy. We're, I, we're... I tell you, that's crazy. In, that, that's totally crazy in, in some other way, in some other senses, you know, uh, because first, the Hamas is a right-wing fundamentalist organization. Right. I cannot understand how a leftist, a human rights, uh, uh, you know, uh, and peace lover can endorse such a vicious, uh, bloodthirsty, uh, 
organization, this is a radical fascist rightist organization that should not be tolerated. That doesn't mean that I support the assault on Gaza, of course not, and I explain why if you allow me, but understanding, let alone uh, endorsing Hamas, that's, that's crazy. Secondly, the Hamas is a dictatorship against the Palestinians themselves. Mm-hmm. Before we even talk about the massacre that Hamas did in the south of Israel, in the last, since Hamas took control over uh, Gaza Strip, with the assistance of Israel, by the way, it, 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 uh, it just, you know, institutionalized a dictator, dictatorial, vicious, fascist-like a regime against the Palestinian people in Gaza. We should never, you know, ignore that. That, of course, doesn't justify whatsoever the siege. The siege is not a consequence of what Hamas did or what Hamas is. The siege it was driven by Israeli attempts to continue with the occupation by other means. That's the main issue. Mm-hmm. It is it, it used the rule of the Hamas as an excuse. That's true. But Hamas is a vicious organization that causes a lot of damage to its own people. Right. You know, it, it reminds me of, you know, right after September 11th in the U.S., when Bush Bush used that attack to, he used it for political gain. He wanted to go into Iraq. And when when there's when there's an attack like that, especially when innocent civilians are are killed, uh, people will people will look the other way and and accept a lot of a lot of things that are not right. And I think a lot of people at the time that said yes, we should invade Iraq, look back at that and realize that they just got caught up in the in the fervor. Yeah. Yeah. Look, there's a. You, I, I guess that you. I, I guess you and 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 our listeners know the book by Nomi Klein's, the Shock Doctrine. I think it's. Uh, let me think how, how it's called. The, the name of the book. I'm trying to remember. Uh, shock Doctrine. The Shock Doctrine. That's it. That's it. Okay. So in the Shock Doctrine, she actually, you know. Uh, analyzes different incidents uh, in the world. Uh, some of them are, uh, you know, uh, uh, disasters caused by natural causes like uh, Catherine uh, in New Orleans. And some of them are disasters created by people like the war in Iraq. And mm-hmm. she explains there both theoretically and historically as test cases. She takes the, how different governments uh, used disasters, either natural ones or uh, uh, human-made ones, uh, in order to pursue political and economic endeavors and interests. So it's the same was, of course, with uh, what you mentioned after 9-11. And the same here. What I'm, but what I'm trying to say, what I would like, with, if, I, if I can specify a bit more, I guess that everybody is familiar with the attempt of the current government in Israel to realize a coup, uh, which is uh, where the government itself refers to it as a judicial reform. I refer to it as a coup d'etat. 
But in, uh, in the bottom line, what the government tried to do for many months before the uh, massacre is to realize, uh, to, to eliminate the independence of the judicial system in Israel. Now, many people across the, the world and in Israel too, refer to this uh, attempt to eliminate the uh, independence of the judicial system as the end uh, of the government. I would like to explain why I think it was not an end in itself, but a means to another end. Now, what do I mean by that? In 2017, Smotrich, who I mentioned in his name before, who is now a minister, and with a lot of influence, unfortunately, a really bigot, you know, a person that really believes in a Jewish supremacy and in racial theory. Mm. Uh, crystal clear, uh, totally, uh, and explicitly. So he, when he was a member of the Knesset, relatively marginal, that even some, many of the right wing referred to him as a lunatic six years ago in 2017, he published a plan called the Subjugation Plan. The subjugation plan, you know, boils down to three points, to three main points. First, that Israel should annex the Palestinian occupied, the occupied Palestinian territories, primarily the West Bank, without granting rights, basic rights to the Palestinians. That means a full-fledged official uh, apartheid regime, yes? Second point, those Palestinians who will not be ready to accept their status as subjects and uh, rather than citizens are going to be expelled from the homeland. And third, uh, though implicitly it was very clear at the same time that those Palestinians are going to resist to their subject as a, to their status as subjects are going to be killed. Now, the government which is, which consists, the current government consists of a many bigots of this kind, and uh, they want to realize the subjugation plan, and Netanyahu just goes on with it. In my view, the real end of the coup d'etat, the quote-unquote judicial reform, was to eliminate the main obstacle or hindrance that the government faced before realizing that plan, and that is eliminating the judicial system. Because everybody in the government knew that if they tried to realize that fascist plan by Smotriches, so the judicial system, especially the Supreme Court, are not going to allow that. So in order to realize that end, they needed, as far as they were concerned, to eliminate the judicial system. That was the means. Now, they failed. They failed because thanks to millions and millions of good people in Israel, which with whom many of uh, them, perhaps the majority, still have some disagreements uh, as far as occupation is concerned, etc. But uh, millions of Israelis, and we must be very aware in our words, you know, uh, to distinguish between uh, Jews, Israelis, Zionists, uh, rightists, every, uh, everything, you know, is different from the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the Jews around the world, I guess, I believe, are against this government, are for peace, are against the occupation and the assault on Gaza. We see in the United States many Jewish organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace. We know the 
not in our name uh, group, uh, etc. So we must be very aware not to conflate uh, objection to the government with a uh, uh, perish the thought anti-Semitism. And again, uh, some people do conflate those two, and it's our role to stop them, to uh, explain them, to tell them anti-Semitism is racism, is a crime, is wrong to say the least, it is despicable. Anti-objecting uh, 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 to the government of Israel is a legitimate democratic stance. And in my view, a moral obligation for the benefit of all people in the area, Palestinians and Israelis, by the way. I'm not talking against Israel or Israelis. I'm talking against the government because in my view, the government of Israel is against, is against Israel and the Israelis, of course, alongside being uh, viciously against the Palestinians. So anyway, once the government failed, thanks to some international uh, pressure, alas, not enough, but mainly because of the huge demonstrations against a coup, they needed an alternative. Now, I'm going back to what we began with uh, in our chat. Uh, we talked about the militaristic character of the Israeli society and its history. Now, one of the things that the governments, different governments of Israel, have always tried to do since the very beginning of the, the state, is that when there was a crisis that they could not uh, uh, solve or, they could, or the government could not afford to confront, they very often, more often than not, use the, the military or the, or the, uh, the security tension, etc., uh, as a solution. That is to say, if you cannot solve something, do something in order to have a confrontation, even if a limited one, and everybody is going to join forces with you. See what I mean? So I do not say, of course, that is the government of Israel is interested in this criminal carnage that Hamas did. I do not say that. Because although this government consists of endless, uh, you know, uh, lunatics, I still don't believe that uh, they are they, they are so lunatic to you know, want uh, their own people to be butchered. So that's not what I'm saying. I do say that the government of Israel wanted to create a, a low-level confrontation in order to use it as an excuse to uh, uh, pursue with the uh, subjugation plan after it didn't succeed in doing so by the coup. Unfortunately, the Hamas carried out this slaughter, and the government of Israel, again, not that it wanted this slaughter, I emphasize it did not, and uh, it was not aware of that ahead, I'm sure about it, cannot imagine another scenario, but it did use it as an excuse to uh, pursue and try to realize, at least in part, this uh, subjugation plan of Smotriches, and we can see that it does so by uh, adopting three different strategies. The strategy vis-a-vis -vis the Gaza Strip, which is a, a bloody, even genocidal, one may say, assault or assault on innocent civilians, because the victims in Gaza, which is exceed 6,000, and uh, more than 2,000 children, the assault on Gaza, 
uh, is, uh, is first and foremost against innocent civilians. The victims are primarily not Hamas, you know, people, but uh, innocent civilians. So, and of course, under the smoke screen of this assault, they, uh, the government of Israel uh, uh, continues with some other uh, uh, criminal activities in the West Bank and uh, even within Israel itself. And I shall refer to it with your permission in a second. So Israel, first of all, the one strategy uh, against Gaza is the terrible, bloody, uh, some experts say a, a genocidal assault on Gaza, which takes the lives of thousands of innocent civilians, and of course, uh, also accompanied, as it were, with a transfer, with a forced uh, expulsion of innocent people, including uh, elderly and children and uh, disabled from the north of the street to the south. But under the screen smoke of uh, the smoke screen of the of this in the West Bank, and I uh, I saw that Biden uh, mentioned it yesterday, too little and too late. Uh, settlers in the West Bank, and I gave an example before, are now all uh, freely attacked, including uh, lethal attacks on uh, uh, innocent Palestinians who work their land, for instance, or and, and kill some of them and attack them and burn their uh, fields and cut off their trees. That's something that they, they, they've been doing for ages. And of course, the uh, occupation forces uh, uh, allow them to do so, don't stop them, sometimes even assist them. And of course, in addition, the occupation forces attack Palestinians in the towns and cities as well. This is the other strategy of the very same program of Smotriches. This is the ethnic a cleansing strategy. I mentioned before that I visited to, before everything began, before the massacre, I visited the Jordan Valley in the occupied West Bank and I realized that four communities now, it's many more than four communities were totally expelled. By the way, those are not just small communities. I'm talking about a size double of Tel Aviv in which there was already ethnic cleansing and Palestinians were driven out by the violence of settlers mainly. And the third strategy, which is uh, no less uh, dangerous, is the fascist legal, uh, uh, legislation and the normalization within Israel. So now we under the smoke skin again of the attack, in Israel it's forbidden to demonstrate. It is now forbidden to demonstrate for peace. People try to go to the streets to demonstrate, Jews and Arabs together, to demonstrate, not in favor of the criminality of Hamas, absolutely not. We are totally against the Hamas. But to demonstrate for peace, for ceasefire, for exchange of prisoners and hostages, for life, not for death, to demonstrate for the benefit of all, to express sympathy also to the children of Gaza, yes, alongside the children of Israel, not instead. This is forbidden now. People now, uh, when they try to demonstrate, they are beaten viciously by police forces because they try to demonstrate for peace. That's crazy. People don't pay attention to that. And that's, that's done again under uh, uh, the uh, auspices of Biden's administ administration support. 
And it's not only that it is forbidden to demonstrate. Hundreds of people were interrogated and arrested because they uh, uh, wrote on the social media, uh, again, uh, not nothing in favor of Hamas, but in favor of peace and ceasefire. A person uh, uh, was uh, in Jerusalem was arrested the, the other day, yesterday or the day before, by 10 armed policemen who broke into his house because on his balcony there was a sign saying about Jerusalem that there's no uh, holiness in an occupied city. In Hebrew, it, it rhymes. So, and by the way, the sign is there for months. So he was arrested by 10 armed policemen who broke to his house because this time it is totally forbidden not to express any objection to war, any sympathy to the innocent civilians of Gaza, any, or, or, or any uh, uh, call for ceasefire on the social, net, social network. It is forbidden to demonstrate a, a, a meeting, a Jewish-Arab meeting that was organized and was supposed to take place yesterday was cancelled by the owners of the hall because he was put under he was threatened by the police that if he allowed such a meeting to take place the police was going to close down the hall so there is a war against basic democratic rights in israel now and of course my suspension is part of it right so people must be aware there are three fronts now each of which, under a terrible assault, with all the differences, the huge differences, terrible assault by the occupation system. And I want to emphasize, it is true that the main victims are the Palestinians, but the Israelis are also victims. They are victims of a, a fascist dictatorship that uh, is uh, gradually but firmly materializing now in Israel. And of course, they are victims of the occupation by being targeted uh, by uh, like happened with the massacre of Hamas, the only way to stop the bloodshed for the benefit of all Palestinians, Israelis alike, is to end the occupation, to establish a Palestinian state besides Israel, to end the siege on Gaza. That's that is realistic, but uh, unfortunately, it's uh, the government of Israel and the fanatics in, in Israel and among the Palestinians do everything possible to prevent it. It is realistic because there are good people on both sides, peaceful people and peace lovers on both sides, Israelis and Palestinians. But we need the international community support, which unfortunately we now lack. Right. And it's at this point, it's so it's so difficult to to even try to promote peace when that has been explicitly forbidden that you can't demonstrate for peace. Of course, that's the reason that, as I said before, sorry, as I said before, in my view, the uh, the real end is to uh, realize the, uh, at least in part, the subjugation plan of Smotriches and to turn Israel into a full-fledged fascist dictatorship. That's what the government wants. Hmm. And since it failed in doing so by coup, by this uh, elimination of the judicial system, it uses the disaster, the carnage, the criminal slaughter 
that Hamas committed, they use it as an excuse to pursue with the very same plan they had before. That's something mm-hmm. people must understand. It has nothing to do with the security of Israel and Israelis. I and my friends, we are interested in the security of Israel and the Israelis. Unfortunately, the government is not. Hmm. So what is the uh what is the status of I know you're I know you're suspended now for 45 days and uh I imagine you're not you're not the only one who is who's under some fire at this point and what does the opposition do is there a path forward at this point that, look one of the problems is that as, as i said before that if there is a war if there is a, something that has to do with a security whether it is a emergent or whether it is real uh, it is and of course, the current situation is a real issue. The question is how to confront it. But in the past, there were some imagined, you know, imagined uh, uh, situations. Uh, but uh, it is very common in Israel that when something like that uh, happened, definitely something disastrous like happened in uh, in, in Israel uh, three weeks ago. Uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of the oppos- opposition joined forces with the coalition. That's exactly what. Uh, Benny Gantz, you know, in his companions did uh, uh, last week when they joined the, the government and legitimized by that, by the way, the most fanatic and racist in, uh, components in the Israeli politics and society. That's very unfortunate. But it's not only in joining the government. More, uh, apart from us uh, in the parliament, that is the Hadash, which is the coalition, democratic uh, front of Peace and Equality, which is based on the Communist Party. Together with Tal, there's a coalition of us, of two parties together, one list. We have five seats. Uh, apart from us, uh, the all so-called opposition just joined forces with the government and they voted for an emergency government and then votes for anything the government wants uh, to do. Uh, that's part of the of the problem in Israel that there's no real strong opposition that really uh, presents an alternative. In the last uh, at least twenty years, twenty perhaps a bit more than twenty years, the alternative uh, uh, that uh, to the right wing uh, governments and uh, parties, an alternative calling for ending the occupation one way or another, reaching a uh, uh, peace engaging in dialogue with the Palestinians, etc., etc. This alternative just, you know, uh, almost vanished altogether. We are the only ones who still stick to it. And that's the reason, by the way, that the so-called Zionist left collapsed in the last elections because they don't present any real alternative now. Any alternative. Nobody apart from us is talking about ending the occupation. Nobody. Individuals, there are individuals, members of the Knesset, you know, in different parties that do say, some of them explicitly and vocally that they are against the occupation, but they don't, but they are still part of parties which do not say that and definitely do not do anything regarding that. So it is a, a very, very dire situation, which I'm very afraid of. Because first of all, as a humanistic, I'm afraid for human lives. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not only being afraid. The fact is that so ta- many thousands of people, lives were lost, Israelis and Palestinians. I'm afraid that it's going to spread. If there's not immediate, an immediate ceasefire, an exchange of prisoners and hostages, I'm afraid that the fire is going to extend. And then mm-hmm. there's a risk of a regional war with many more <clears throat> victims and destruction. And it may even spread to beyond to a world war. So it is now to stop the fire. It's not only a moral stance and a just cause, but it is also the interest of the whole world. Because I, I, I use this platform to warn everybody who listens and everybody who is ready to absorb my words, not only to listen. If there's no immediate ceasefire, exchange of prisoners and hostages, everybody, the war is going to extend and spread. It may be, uh, you know, it may deteriorate into a world, a world scale war. That should be stopped. It can be stopped now. It can. Perhaps next week it won't be possible anymore. Hmm. And I appeal to the leaders of the world. I appeal to the United Nations. I also allow myself to appeal to Biden's administration with all my criticism. Listen, you have the power to stop this before it's too late. Before it's too late. Well, doctor, thank you so much for... uh... For, for this important message for, for joining us and I know you're uh, I know you're very busy so we really appreciate it and I I think we had one thank you so much. question about what can uh, we've gotten several questions actually about what what can we do here in the United States uh, to, from not only from the Communist Party USA but just left leaning people in general are there organizations that we can donate to are there what can what can we do to to help? I think I think there are two things which are actually two sides of the same coin. First, of course, is to join forces with all progressive, democratic uh, organizations, anti-war organizations, Jewish Voice for Peace, for instance, Palestinian uh, uh, progressive organizations. I'm not talking about you know racist ones because there are. Uh, <coughs> And some, of course, uh, uh, communities, uh, religious, progressive uh, 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 groups to join forces and try to do something together. People of all reli- of all races and, and, and origins and religions and classes, etc., to call upon the, the Biden administration to uh, uh, to hold the fire, to to reach ceasefire immediately. Because Biden's administration has the power to, to contribute a lot to that. It's very mm-hmm. unfortunate that thus far he's been doing exactly the opposite. And secondly, which is the, the, uh, the other side of the same coin, do fight against anti-Semitism. Because like I said before that the cynical, fanatic government of Israel cynically manipulates the terrible massacre that Hamas did as an excuse to wage a terrible war against innocent Palestinians. But many anti-Semites in the world, including the United States, use the same situation 
to manipulate and campaign against Jews. This is unacceptable. This is the problem, despicable. Anti-Semitism should be fought against in all circumstances. So at the same time that we fight against racism towards Palestinians and against Islamophobia, we must also fight against anti-Semitism. Don't ever give up on this struggle. It's crucially important. It's just, first and foremost, it's moral, but it is also productive, politically speaking. Never give up on that. And don't cooperate with anti-Semites. Ofer Kassif, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Thank you. And we, we will uh, look forward to, to keeping, up, keeping up with you and hope that you and your uh, family stay safe. Thank you very much. All the best. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening to Pants on Fire, Exposing Ruling Class Lies, the podcast produced by the International Department of CPUSA. Visit our website, cpusa.org, to learn more about the party. Follow us on Twitter at CPUSA Department, and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.